Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers and here it comes another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It is the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud whose family started the profession 100 years ago. So now we step back into the ring, back into time. Let's get wall to wall, treetop tall with the Tennessee stud. Ron Fuller. Hey, Ron, how is life in the Great Smoky Mountains? Oh, man, it's beautiful. Uh, can't uh, complain about a darn thing. I can tell you that. Weather's pretty nice. Uh, you know, I see you all been getting some bad weather down there along the Gulf Coast. Uh, you know, but uh, it's uh, it's been pretty decent up here, man. Not much rain, so it's 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 nice, man, enjoying it. Good deal. So far in the month of June, it seems like it seems like it's going to be a, a rainy summer, and we get those occasionally. But but anyway, July is still a coming, and we know it's going to be a hot one if the rain stays away. All right, listen, Ron, Studcast have become one of the most popular wrestling podcasts in the world. They've been filled with the sports history that. You, I mean, I'm talking you and your family's history, and now contain a behind the kayfabe curtain look into one of the most rare occurrences of all. And I think it's so fascinating to hear you tell about it. And that's a wrestling war. Well, you know, I always knew, Dave, that uh, after I'd done my first stud cast, as a matter of fact, about my grandfather, and then I did uh, some several of them on my father's wrestling history, and uh. And then as I've continued on my own history and where we are now, we're in this great time frame, man, of the Knoxville War, you know, where I really felt like uh, this is going to be where we're going to uh, get a whole lot of audience and a rapid growth in our audience. You know, and, I, and I've, I've been basically blessed, man, by the good Lord with a wonderful life, man, uh, a lot of stories to tell. And uh, luckily, uh you know, listeners find them interesting. So, uh, Studcast have been doing really, really good. And uh, <laughs> actually, this last one uh, is the is the all time record. Uh, actually, set the record in five days. So, wow, uh, we've just uh, we really got a lot of people listening, man. And uh, and I really appreciate that the support out there. Hey, listen, as the numbers on the listeners, by the way, come in each week, your prediction of the interest in the Knoxville war, absolutely spot on in less than five days after release, the last stud cast, you said it more listeners than any in history. In addition to the Knoxville war 
It also doesn't hurt that you've got a second, tory, uh, second territory you're talking about at the same time that introduced some of the sport's all-time great stars. Yeah, we had a lot going on, man. Uh, uh, you know, and I kind of think the word blessed covers what it what it's all about, man. Everything in my life, man, I seem to owe to the man above, and uh, and I definitely owe to the man above. As a matter of fact, I, I'm honored, man, to have given, been given all these experiences, so many for wonderful true stories, and uh, and uh, and the platform to pass this along to others out there. And uh, I know a lot of got a lot of fans out there enjoy this. And uh, wow, I kind of enjoyed telling the story too. So it's uh, it's been a nice thing, man. And speaking of passing something along to others, the title for this studcast, this is number 304. Number 304, it's called Tennessee Family Affair, Idol Influences Hulk. So as we continue the weekly story, why don't you set up that title for us? Tell us what it means and tell us where we're going to be writing this week. Well, how about I answer the last question first here about, you know, we're going to be writing this week uh, and tell everybody where we're going to go and in this studcast, and then we'll talk about that title for the studcast. <laughs> All right, so you've got the reins, stud, you and the lead horse. So <laughs> let's ride. Let's go. Okay, man, we're, we're going to ride into the Tennessee Territory first today, and, and I'll explain the Tennessee family affair in this studcast title. We're going to talk about the Coliseum card on the last week of June, 1979. Uh, we'll break down that TV show that promoted that card. We'll give the, everybody the results of the card and the attendance for that event. And, and then we're going to start, man, uh, we're going to catch up on the Knoxville War during that same week, last week in June of 1979. We'll discuss the All-Star TV show, uh, which at this point they have their own TV uh, We'll correct some incorrect statements that I made on the last uh, about the, their TV on our last studcast. So I want to give uh, listeners as as much of their All Star card as we as was advertised because they didn't advertise it a whole lot. And uh, and I want to touch on some of their plans for the future. Then we're going to ride uh, where I will explain uh, you know south uh, down there uh, in the Hulk and. Uh, and the idol territory where idol influences Hulk. Uh, and that's uh, obviously a part of the name, the title in this stud cast. And we'll get the card there. We'll also talk about the week, last week of June, 1979 down there, the info, the TV, the promoter deck card, the results of the card. And we'll give everybody the attendances for all three of the major cities down there. <laughs> and, uh, and then man, uh, I'm going to do my best on this stud cast to finally get in another learning tree question. Well, it, it sounds kind of ambitious, so I hope it happens. Listen, I, I don't know how you can do all that and get to the learning tree question, but I, I know a lot of Studcast fans certainly miss sitting under that learning tree. All right, so it sounds like you're prepared to first tell us about the Tennessee family affair, part of the title for Studcast number 304. What you got? Yeah, well, you know, uh, this is this is kind of crazy, but, uh, you know, Tennessee family affair, that, this angle... Uh, you know, it uh, came about because of the need, man, for an extremely unusual angle. Uh, because of what was going on, this wrestling war was drawing so much attention and getting fans off track and and uh, not uh, being able to get into what was happening. So uh, uh, we're going to get into something here that's uh, going to get us, draw attention away from the Knoxville War and maybe get us back to 
taking a look at Southeastern wrestling and the fans to paying more attention. So Dick Slater, who was the Knoxville booker at this point, and he was basically in his first booking job, he knew how important it was for fans to get focused again and on what we were doing, not on the war or what the other company was doing. And that was extremely important uh, in any kind of wrestling war. Fans kind of want to talk about the war rather than everything else. So, uh, you know, uh, Dick came to me and uh, with the beginning of an idea, and he asked me to help him. He said, uh, you know, Ron, I got some idea here, and uh, can you help me fine-tune it, man? Uh, add the touches to it that, that's going to give it the real impact so we can shock the fans in the area, and, uh, you know, and, and, and make we can do something that's bigger than the war, right? So he wanted to do something that had never been done in the Knoxville Territory before in its five years in business. Been in, it had been in business for five years, and uh, we had all the components to make it happen in the territory. And the question was uh, how we were going to make it happen. So at this point, I was now living at home in Knoxville full time because of the war. I'd gone back and was staying there. My father and my cousin, Jimmy Golden, they were on the present cards. Uh, that's happening down in the in the southeastern Knoxville territory at that point, and my brother Robert was going to be coming back in two weeks. Uh, we'll be talking about that in just a few minutes. So the Knoxville war had already made me realize, man, it was going to be more difficult than ever to maintain the crowd sizes that we had built over the years before the war began. We need to do something uh, that no fan would have ever expected to see. So. Rather than just tell everybody, you know, like normally we do here, uh, you know, uh, uh, when, you know, I came up with this idea, Dave, I want to go through this in a very different way that we've not done before. So our Studcast fans can experience it just as the Southeastern fans did when it actually happened 44 years ago. Wow, that's a, that's a really cool idea, Ron. So. Rather than tell the angle, you relive it and let us see it piece by piece, kind of as it actually happened. Exactly as Southeastern fans in 1979 watched it for the first time. So, was this angle going to begin on June 29th, 1979 in the Knoxville Coliseum card? Well, not so much on that card itself, Dave, but more on the TV show uh, promoting the card. Hmm. And since you mentioned it, let's talk about the Knoxville Coliseum card, June 29, 1979. It was a triple main event card. It only had five matches on it, one less than we were normally having because the all-star uh, competition that was running on Saturday nights, they were only having four matches. So, uh, you know, because the war was already affecting our crowds, it required us to be a little creative, man, uh, to try to save some money from the normal six-match card and uh, drop that number of matches down to five and then split that six-match money among the crew. You know, it was uh, we weren't drawing as big a crowds. We weren't able to pay the wrestlers as much. It was one of those, the business shortcuts, you know, that actually it cost the fans a match, but it was absolutely necessary to survive a wrestling war. And, uh, and the, you know, people pay, paying attention to the... Uh, the way the crowds have fallen off, they'll understand that, you know, as a business running a business, you had to make some adjustments. So this card opened up with a tag match. It was Dino, who was from Hawaii, partnering up with Jimmy Golden. They were facing Dr. D, David Schultz, and Eddie Mansfield. 
uh, Crusher Blackwell was going to be wrestling Alexis Smirnoff. Uh, the first, then the first of three main events. Uh, first one was for the United States Junior Heavyweight Title. Best two out of three falls, no disqualification. The new champion, Tony Charles, was defending against the former champion, Kevin Sullivan. The second main event was for the Southeastern Tag Belts. Uh, the new tag champions, which was my dad and I, uh, we won the tournament the week before. We were defending against Tor Tanaka and Mr. Fuji, managed by Gorgeous George Jr. And then the third main event was the Southeastern Championship match. The champion, Dick Slater, defending against the guy who had beaten him the week before and won the boat, and the Mongolian Stomper, managed by Gorgeous George Jr. All right, that's a that's a really good card, Stud. Even though it only had five matches, you kind of made up for it, I think, in the U.S. Junior title match, which was a best two out of three falls. So the fans were going to get at least one extra fall, so a little extra bonus wrestling in, in the deal. So what was on the TV to set this whole card up to, to promote the thing? Well, it's a good idea. You know, good eye, Dave. I mean, you picked up on that fact that the two out of three fall match, and uh, mm-hmm. and that's going to pick up the slack uh, for this five card match. Uh, you know, uh, for a five card night. So this TV opened with Dick Slater and his new Southeastern belt, which he had won uh, about uh, four days earlier in Johnson City, Tennessee, in a tournament there. And uh, you know, uh, the less to congratulate him for winning the belt. But uh, that wasn't what the video that they were going to watch was all about, though. Uh, they were going to watch the final match from the Coliseum the night before for the Bayliner boat. And it showed the last two falls of that match. Uh, Stomper uh, was covering uh, Crusher Blackwell when they when this video opened up uh, for the three count. And, uh, and this was a round-robin event on all against all the uh, finals for the boat. Uh, it was a little different match. You had to beat both opponents back-to-back. So Stomper was beating Blackwell, and then it showed Slater rush into the ring to take advantage of Stomper being tired. This thing had gone on for almost an hour, this three-way match. And then the referee, referee was trying to get Blackwell out of the ring, and uh, Slater rolled a Stomper up for a pin. Gorgeous George Jr. sees the referee with his back turned trying to get uh, uh, Blackwell out. Pretty hard to roll Blackwell out of anything. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so uh, Gorgeous George took advantage of it. He ran through the ring. He had something on his fist, and he hit Slater in the back of the head with it. And uh, and then he ran right out the other side. By the time the referee turned around from Blackwell, uh, there, uh, you know, Stomper was on top of Slater. And uh, he just uh, he dropped down there and counted him out. And uh, that was two back-to-back wins for Stomper. And boy, did he win himself a tremendous, tremendous prize for darn sure. That big, beautiful boat. <laughs> and then Slater, you know, uh, was watching this uh, on the video with Les, and, and he got irate about, you know, what, look what happened to me here, man, you know. <laughs> and he had a good reason for it, obviously. He had Stomper pinned, and uh, and he would have got the three count if it, the referee hadn't been uh, uh, tied up over there trying to get uh, Blackwell out of the ring. So uh, Slater told Les, you know, he'd already signed to put up his new Southeastern belt the next Friday night. And uh, he said, you know, Les, since I've I just won the belt and I've already signed to put it up against the Stomper, he goes, uh, I would like to know if he would be willing to put up the boat against my championship. 
So the studio popped on that one, man. You know, they would have loved to have seen that. So, so Les told Slater, and Dick was in the first TV match. He said, well, you know, you're in the first match here, and, and you're headed to the ring, and I'll try to find out the answer to that during the course of this match. So Slater left the set. He went straight to the ring. And, uh, well, at this point, Dick Slater's becoming the big, big, uh, big-time babyface there. And all of studio was standing up, man. They were really happy to see him. And there he had a new belt. And so uh, he had basically become uh, one of the top baby faces. So Gorgeous George Jr. and the Mongolian Stalmer came to the set with Les. Because they were back in the dressing room. There was monitors in the dressing room so they could see what was happening. And they saw the challenge. So Les asked Gigi right away about Slater's challenge, you know. And he asked him if the Stomper and him would be willing to risk his boat against Slater's belt. And uh, both of them just, they just busted out laughing, man. Like, they were like, what a joke. So Gigi said, uh, absolutely not. Because, because, you know, the Southeastern officials, uh, they already have the card book, you know. And next Friday night, Slater, he's already signed a contract to defend his belt. He said, under no circumstances do the Southeastern officials have any right to force us to put the Mongolian stomper in my boat. He called it my boat, uh, you know, uh, up and in this match, you know, could, uh, that ain't going to happen. So, uh, so Les, you know, having saw what happened on the video just minutes before, he kind of questioned the legality of, uh, of your win. He goes, wait a minute, uh, you, you just saw how you won the boat. You know, he said, judging from the video, he said, uh, you know, why why would uh, Slater not ask for that, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, he, you know, that kind of fell on deaf ears, man. GG and the Stomper, they didn't want to hear it, man. They just started walking off the set, still laughing as they left, man. <laughs> it was a joke for them. <laughs> All right, so I bet the first interview segment was pretty interesting, especially Dick Slater's part of it. So, All right. <laughs> All right, moving on. So how about the second match? Who was in that one? Well, Hollywood Connection, man. That's who they were calling themselves. Dr. D. David Schultz and Eddie Mansfield. Both of them blonde-headed men. And, uh, you know, uh, so they they were they were really uh, a great team and had been doing very, very well. Uh, there. And Jimmy and Golden, uh, they were in the ring. And uh, Jimmy Golden and Dean Ho, who was their opponents the next Friday night, uh, they came to the set with Les. They were, they were going to watch and commentate over the match. And uh, this match ended the same way as the Schultz and Mansfield TV match from the week before. Uh, Dr. D, man, he almost ripped a guy's head off in this one with a, he got his opponent, one of his opponents with that forearm clothesline, man, across the throat. And this time it didn't just turn the guy flip, it, it shot him backward out through the ropes and landed on the back of his head on the concrete in the floor out there. And uh, so both uh, Jimmy and, uh, and Dean Ho's comments, uh, their reaction said everything that needed to be said about what they just saw. Mm. It, it kind of sounds like Schultz was getting even more vicious and becoming, maybe becoming the clothesline king. All right, so moving on to the personality profile. What was that about? Who, who, uh, who was on there? Well, my father and I, man, uh, we had our Southeastern Championship belts that we had just won the night before in the tournament. And uh, the profile was done live in front of the studio audience. And uh, 
So we joined Les and we sat in those plush profile chairs and uh, Les showed videos of both our two tournament wins from the night before. Uh, and then he, the second one he showed, the one he ended up with, was where Gorgeous George Jr. got involved. Uh, he cost his team to lose by disqualification. Uh, that, that got us into the finals of the tournament to where we actually won the belts. And, uh, and when he got disqualified, he also got himself knocked into the second row by my dad, man. Caught him not looking and just sent him sailing out of the ring. So then something uh, totally different happened for the first time in a personality profile that I could remember. Les, too, later on said that himself. Uh, somebody interrupted it, and then that was Jimmy Golden. And uh, he was very polite, and he apologized to all three of us. And, uh, and he said, you know, watching that last video, uh, you know, with my Uncle Buddy being involved in this uh, upcoming match, uh, he said, reminded me of uh, what happened to my father right here in Southeastern almost exactly a year ago. We were going to be wrestling against, obviously, uh, the uh, Gorgeous George team. Uh, and uh, we were going to be taking them on for the championship belt, his Japanese team of Tanaka and Fuji. So, you know, Jimmy says, you know, I saw this video just a second ago, and he goes, I hope you, I hope you don't mind. I apologize for coming out here. But he goes, it reminded me of what happened to my father right here in Southeastern. He said, almost exactly a year ago. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, my father put up my hair to, to get me and my partner a shot at the tag belts that Dennis Condry and Phil Hickerson had back in those at that time. And he said, uh, the result, and he said, I didn't want it to happen. And he said, the result, well, my father got hurt real bad in that match. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, I just, I, I can't let that happen to my uncle, he said. So. I, you know, I remember the actual 1978 Southeastern TV show that, that Jimmy was talking about. It's the, it is the oldest Southeastern TV show on your streaming channel, by the way, classiccontinentalwrestling.com. I remember the personality profile, Ron, on that TV show from 1978, where Jimmy's father, and I remember this in a stud cast too from the past, where Jimmy's father put up his hair to get Jimmy and his partner that match, and then Jimmy made it very clear that he didn't want his father to do it at all. It was it was truly a historic TV show, Dave, you know, for many reasons. One of them being, it is the oldest uh, Southeastern, complete Southeastern TV show that, that we have. And uh, Jimmy was so sincere about his fear for my father. You know, he said, Uncle Buddy, you know, uh, uh, which he always called my dad, Uncle Buddy. He said, uh, I hope you don't get upset with me. He said, but uh, because I love you, man, and considering your age, I'm very concerned about you possibly getting hurt like my father did. Uh, And then he continued on. He said, you know, that video, we all just watched it, man, of gorgeous George Jr. getting involved last night. He said it's a perfect example of what could happen next Friday. Mm-hmm. Except next Friday, he said it could end up very differently with you guys losing instead of winning, you know, and uh, and uh, with uh, maybe uh, you getting hurt in, instead of winning. And he says, I know you're still one of the toughest wrestlers alive, which my dad always thought he was anyway. Uh, you know, he said uh, that, you know, but, the, but he says this third guy, that uh, gorgeous George Jr. on the outside of the ring, he goes, everybody knows he is a skunk, man, and, and he can change everything. 
So the studio popped, obviously, on the skunk line. They loved Jimmy calling uh, Gigi a skunk, you know. And uh, then Jimmy kind of finished, uh, you know, he said, I came out here for just one thing. He said, to let you know, I'd love to be your in your corner next Friday night and make sure you guys get a fair shake and you get to keep those belts. And the studio crowd popped again. So that Dad was really, I, I was amazed too, you know, uh, you know, on what Jimmy had just said. And Dad just got up, he walked over to him, and I followed him over there, and we both put our arms around Jimmy, man. And uh, Dad told him, he said, Jimmy, I think it's a great idea. And he go, we'd be proud to have you in our corner. And then the studio really exploded on that one. So the profile ended there, man. Les was standing up and clapping along with the entire studio. It was, <laughs> it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a really different uh, personality profile. That's really a very touching personality profile, Stud. A real family affair, absolutely. So, as you as you alluded in the title for this one. All right, so what finished out the show? Alexis Smirnoff was back in the ring. Uh, first time on TV in, uh, in, a, in quite a few weeks. And he got a big win. Uh, he was going to be wrestling against Crusher Blackwell. And uh, Crusher Blackwell joined Les at the set. He made some comments about their upcoming match. And the last match on the TV was toward Tanaka and Mr. Fuji, managed by Gorgeous George Jr. They were basically warming up for their title shot with me and Dad six days later. And uh, Gigi went to the set during the match, and he let everybody know how he and his, his uh, great Japanese, he called him his great Japanese team, felt about Jimmy Golden being added at the last second to be in the fuller's corner, you know, that that wasn't necessary. Mm-hmm. That shouldn't have happened. He was very upset about it. <laughs> and that golden, uh, should be the one worried about getting hurt. Not, uh, not to buddy fuller, you know, and to knock on Fuji, they, they left both opponents laying, man. They made a statement themselves, uh, while Gigi was doing his thing. Yeah, boy, they were big time. No doubt. All right. So that's a loaded TV show stud for real. All right, so what happened the following Friday night? Dean Ho and Jimmy uh, got the pin on Eddie Mansfield. Uh, and uh, that happened as Schultz just kind of stood in the corner watching helplessly, man. Uh, uh, Jimmy and Jimmy and uh, Dean Ho was a pretty good team. And uh, so, uh, you know, Mansfield wasn't in the same, uh, same, uh, same league as the, those three guys. Uh, Crusher Blackwell beat Alexis Smirnoff. Tony Charles won the first of three main events, retained his United States Junior Heavyweight Championship over Kevin Sullivan, uh, and he won, obviously, two out of the three falls. Dick Slater kept his Southeastern Championship with a win by disqualification over the Mongolian Stomper, managed by Gorgeous George Jr. And in the last match, the main event for this one, was the Southeastern Tag Championship, Tora Tanaka, Mr. Fuji, managed by G.G., and uh, they ended up winning the tag belts for my father and I with Jimmy in our corner. But it was kind of an odd ending to this match. It was a really wild match. Uh, it had as much fighting on the outside of the ring as it did inside, basically. You know, in the end of the match, uh, Jimmy and Gigi were fighting on the outside of the ring in, in our corner of the ring. And, uh, and Dad and Tanaka were the legal guys in the ring. And uh, they were fighting in the corner, same corner me and Fuji were in. Uh, and there was a whole lot of legs there, man, a lot going on there. And uh, Jimmy reached in, and you're going to try to pull Tanaka's leg out from under him. And uh, 
And as they, him and Dad spun down the ropes there, Jimmy got the wrong leg, and he snatched Dad's leg. And Tanaka went down on top of Dad, and he got the three count. <laughs> so it was not the ending that fans wanted. So it's, And it also sounds like an accident on Jimmy's behalf. So there were new Southeastern Tag Champions? Yeah, they were, man. Uh, so, But the next week, man, we're going to have a chance to win the belts back with all the six of the same people involved uh, in it next week as well. All right, that's cool. But, all right, how about the attendance? How did you guys do on that? Well, it wasn't much different from the week before, man. It was still below 3,000 people. Uh, and, uh, you know, and that uh, that was to be expected. There was a war going on. Hmm. All right, you said earlier you were going to give us some more information regarding the All-Stars TV show and their next card. You want to talk about that for a sec? Yeah, man. I'm about to open the door, man, to, to much more than what most people ever knew about the, the Knoxville War. Um, before we take a deep dive, though, let's talk about the All-Stars third card. This was on Saturday night. They were running on Saturdays. We were running on Friday. Saturday, June 30th, 1979. Their card in Chilhari Park the night after our Coliseum show. And I only know two matches on that card because they didn't run ads. They didn't run ads all the time like we did. And uh, so, you know, uh, so because this was, there was now two wrestling shows weekly, the newspaper publicized our top two matches and their top two matches in a little weekly small write-up column. Uh, besides the ad that we had that had our card on it, they had this other little, uh, they threw us a little uh, write-up column with uh, the matches for every Friday. And, uh, and it was just another example of the way things were, were going since this war had started. Mm-hmm. Before the war started, Southeastern used to get that entire write-up. It was not only the, the ad that we used, but we got the write-up that told again what the card was. But uh, now... That didn't happen for us. If we didn't get the whole title, the whole uh, column mm-hmm. anymore, we split it with all stars. <laughs> you know, so it was just a, it was just what the, all of the the wrestling war was all about, man. Uh, everything was more difficult. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound fair at all on the newspaper side of it. You, I mean, because you have been paying for an ad every week and used it to get the free added write-up column that you're talking about. So now that that they were there, even though they didn't always run weekly ads, you spent money and invested in the newspaper, they still got half of the write-up column. So Southeastern used to get all of it, but now you had to share it. And, you know, well, there's nothing fair, man, about a wrestling war. I guess it's the only way I could answer that. <laughs> I know, um, right? And in fact, I had less, uh, you know, represent the company. I couldn't go down to the paper and talk to them about it, but I had less go down and talk to the newspaper people about it and complain a little bit. And, uh, well, we found out quick, the newspapers were big businesses and they they didn't care about a little feud going on regarding (laughs) the local wrestling. That wasn't a problem for them. Uh So it was just another disappointment that came with the war, man. So, Let's talk about their two main events on the Saturday night uh, plug for this show and that little write-up. Like I said, they didn't have an ad, so they just had a little write-up. They put two matches in there. 
It was Ronnie Garvin again against Bob Orton Jr. This was the third week in a row. They'd been there three weeks, had the same main event. And, uh, and they also had the same second uh, match that was uh, that they talked about, a six-man tag, the same six-man tag that had the same six guys for three weeks in a row. So it basically illustrated the fact that they had very little talent, man. So, uh, <laughs> so I talked a little bit last week about their new TV show on Saturdays, and, and I, I want to correct something. I was incorrect about two things that I think I said last week. I said I thought the show was 30 minutes because I, t- I was honest. I had never watched their show, so I didn't know exactly how long it was. I thought it was 30 minutes. But I had a conversation with Les Thatcher uh, this past week, and he said, no, Ron, it was an hour show. you know. And I said that it was produced on that same local TV station that we were in when South- Southeastern was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and because I never watched it, I didn't realize that wasn't true. So, uh, you know, the, it's kind of crazy. All the things that are going on about this time frame. Right. Right. But the point is you never watched the show. So yeah. All right. Yeah. So <laughs> it's sort of like Les said, you know, I mean, I, I talked to Les, I went back this past week and I, and I talked to Les about it and, and, you know, and he hardly ever watched it either, but he did know that. And, uh, and there was a lot more going on before the war got started that I never talked about that probably led them, these guys, to believe that they may be able to compete mm-hmm. or maybe just outright win the war. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, this is something I have never talked to anybody or said to anybody about what was going on in 1979. But in that year, there was another wrestling company located in Lexington, Kentucky, which was about a hundred and 50 miles north of Knoxville, up 75 Mm -hmm. uh, to Lexington. And that company was called ICW, International Championship Wrestling. Mm -hmm. They had their own TV show. Uh, They had been running some of the same towns as the Memphis Territory and the Nick Goulas Roy Welch Mid-American Territory. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, that's crazy, Ron. The other two territories in Tennessee were dealing with something similar to what was beginning to similar to what was beginning to happen in Knoxville. Yeah. Crazy. I mean, you know, uh, this ICW company, they didn't care where they rent and uh, you know, they had never bought a territory or, or had any ownership rights or anything connected to it, but they were able to go and do what they wanted to. So yeah, that's correct. I mean, you know, it was kind of crazy and it gets crazier though. You know I mean? Uh, the ICW, the International Championship Wrestling Company, that was producing their own TV show on a Lexington station up there. They aired it on other TV stations, this show, in Kentucky and in Tennessee and Indiana. Uh, now they were down there in Knoxville, too, because uh, these guys had kind of gone up and uh, joined forces with it. So ICW, uh, International Championship Wrestling, was owned by... Angelo Papo, the father of Lanny and Randy Papo. Uh, and, uh, you know, two young wrestlers during this time frame, 1979. Mm-hmm. Uh, Randy uh, used to used to have the last name of Savage, man. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody will know, the, know him better as uh, the Macho Man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, don't, re- don't remember anything like that. No, not at all. <laughs> Man, what a legend. What a, and there's only one, there's only one macho man. 
All right, so amazing stuff, Stud. Really good stuff. All right, so I can't believe how interesting the Knoxville War is becoming and as you as you dive deeper. It's a fascinating first part to this studcast. I got to admit to that. I hate to cut this off here, but we got to get into the second half of today's studcast. We're definitely going to get back to this story on the next studcast. I guarantee you that. So right now, Austin Idol is waiting to influence the Hulkster in the next part of this studcast. And that is coming up in moments. Hey, y'all, it's David Summers. Ron and I want to thank you, the thousands of Studcast fans around the world, for making his Studcast one of the most popular wrestling podcasts in the world. The last one set an all-time record for downloads only six days after release. Your continued support is greatly appreciated. We have the best fans in the world and the most unique subject matter of any wrestling podcast. We would love to hear from you on one of Ron's social media sites, Facebook, Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, follow and like him there or on Twitter, Ron Fuller Welch. Okay. Welcome back to the second half of episode number 304 on this studcast. It's called Tennessee family idol influences Hulk. So we're now down on the southeastern Gulf Coast in part two of this studcast. Ryan, you're going to tell us about how Austin Idol was influencing the Hulk. So do you want to start there or with the card for that week down there? Well, let's get right to that Idol, man, influencing the Hulk part of the title. Uh, you know, and uh, Michael Dennis McCord, uh, that's, uh, that's better known as Austin Idol. That's his real name, uh, mm-hmm. you know, from Tampa area. He'd been a friend of mine basically since the late 1960s. Uh, that's when I first met him. And uh, I met him through uh, Idol's great friend, Mike Grant. And uh, so Mike and my dad, Eddie and my dad were uh, friends for many, many years. So that was the first time I met Austin Idol. And uh, once Dennis, I called him Dennis most of the time. Uh, once he got into the wrestling business, he would uh, soon, uh, you know, he'd years later become a very different wrestler than he was originally. We were actually on the same tour in Australia in 1973. He was wrestling on that tour as Dennis McCord. He wasn't, he wasn't Austin Idol yet. And uh, he was using his real name. And, uh, you know, Dennis had always been an extremely bulky type of body, big weightlifter guy, you know. And uh, even before he started wrestling, and uh, you know, but it wasn't it wasn't good. He didn't have a good look about him, uh, and he wasn't getting anywhere in the sport. You know, he wasn't getting used very well. Uh, I think he would have not made it. So, uh, you know, after the Australian tour, uh, I didn't see him. The Australian tour, I, I left there in uh, March of 1973. I didn't see him for two years until January 1975. In Memphis, Tennessee. And, uh, you know, one thing about Austin Idol, he was a very creative guy and he was determined to be successful. Uh, and so during that two year period, when, when I didn't see him, he changed his body. He changed his hair. He changed everything about him. He went from a 300 pound weightlifter type body down to a very toned and trimmed 250 pounds. He dyed his natural black hair to blonde, and uh, he looked so different two years later. As a matter of fact, since I had seen him, 
I ran into him. He came into the dressing room in Memphis, Tennessee, in the old Mid-South Coliseum. And uh, he didn't say anything. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't recognize him, you know. He came there and sat down beside me. And I didn't even remember, you know, I was like, well, who is this guy? And then finally he says, are you going to say hello to me? And, uh, and I had to ask him, I said, <laughs> who are you? And he goes, I'm Dennis McCord, Austin Idol. I, I was blown away. I was like, are you kidding? You know, geez, man, what have you done to yourself? So uh, it was really a hell of a moment between the two of us. So it was like just waiting on me to say something. And uh, heck, I, was, I didn't know who he was. So, and that was just the beginning, basically, of Austin's creativity, man. Uh, so he was a heel. He was always a heel. He was a heel at that point. And so I, I was, too, at the same time, 1975. I was the Southern Heavyweight Champion for the Memphis Territory, and uh, I was a heel as well. So in the first interview, he did, after seeing him again, you know, uh, he, he was calling himself on the Memphis TV uh, you know, I, uh, he was calling him. He was really pushing the name of Idol, mm-hmm. of Austin Idol, and he's the first person I ever heard use the term Idol Mania. Mm. Mania, right? Yeah. What a great gimmick for a heel, right? I mean, you know, uh, people don't like you, and you say, "Oh, everybody loves me. They're going crazy about me." Uh, you know. Uh, Idle Mania is going crazy, you know, and I remember saying that type of stuff. Yeah. 1975, <laughs> way before Hulk ever thought about uh, yeah. being a wrestler, right? <laughs> All right, so I, I think I see where you're going on this, Dud, with his influencing the future Hulk. That had to be where Terry Bollea came up with Hulkamania, obviously, years and years later. Yeah. Sure. I mean, it, it was a natural thing. And, uh, and then there was another thing uh, that happened between uh, with Idol and with, uh, uh, with uh, the Hulk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this didn't have to do with the word like Hulkamania. This had to do with a type of uh, something they did in the ring. So, uh, you know, and uh, so basically uh, Louis Toilette told me, man, he watched their first matches together between Hogan and Idol. And Louis said, uh, you know, that uh, – that he had noticed from the very first time he saw him work uh, with each other that, uh, you know, uh, Idol, uh, since the day he had arrived, they said as a heel in Southeastern, uh, he would do this little thing where he would do a little cute move with a baby face. And, uh, and uh, you know, then he would, uh, he would get out of it and then he would put his hand up to his ear mm-hmm. and uh, lean out to the crowd like he wanted them to cheer for him. Right? right, exactly. Yeah, but he was a heel. So they would boo, right? Instead of cheer, they would boo like crazy for him. So, so, so Louis said to me, he tells me during this time frame, he says, hey, one, he said, I'm watching their first match. And he goes, Idle and Hulk are working. He says, one of their first matches together, he goes, Idol did a cute move. He put his hand up to his ear and he got the fans to boo. <laughs> you know, and he says, uh, and he said, for the first time, he said, I saw Hulk do something that he didn't be, wasn't told to do. Mm-hmm. He said he he was no dummy. You know, he said right then, I said, geez, the guy, this guy's going to, he's got more going for him than I thought, you know. Mm-hmm. And he said, so after Idol had done that move, he, so, he said, uh, 
then Hulk did a little cute move, right, mm -hmm. uh, to idle. And then he said, instead of uh, putting his hand up to his ear in the ring, he said he was smart enough. He went out on the floor uh, so that he could milk it better. And then he put his hand up to his ear, right? <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. You know? Yeah. And he says, wow, he said he got twice as many cheers as Idol got booze, you know? Wow. And then he said, and then he said, what really got me, Ron, though, is he said he didn't stop there. He said, then he went to the other section, the other side of the building, put his hand up to his ear. He said he did it on all four sides of the building. Mm. And he said, uh, he said, what happened? And he said, I was shocked. He said, the f every time he went to another section, he got a bigger response than the first one. Wow. And he said, basically, by the time he went to the fourth section, he said, he had that building going crazy, right? That's, Ron, that is incredible ring instinct for a guy really who had no time in the ring, Hulk Hogan, who yeah, would become Hulk you know? Hogan. So Louis says, you know, uh, suddenly he said a wrestling match had become more than that. He said it became a contest between the fans <laughs> as, as to which side of the building could make more noise. He yeah. Said. yeah. So he, then he says, you know, Ron, neither, you know, I wasn't the greatest worker. And he said, Hulk certainly wasn't the greatest worker. But he <laughs> goes, this small thing that I watched, he said, in the middle of the match, he said it made a tremendous difference in the whole match. He said that made that match much, much better than it could have ever been otherwise. You know, so you, basically, Idol's influence here yeah. got to the Hulk. Hulk took it to the next phase mm -hmm. and uh, and used it his entire career. You don't you don't think about a simple thing like that, Ron. So now I kind of I see what they were doing, not even touching each other, but getting a big pop from the crowd, a big reaction from something that was not even a wrestling move just literally hand gestures so now you do you want to give us that gulf coast card during the last week of june 1979 yeah the this card opened up with greg peterson against the inferno uh wrestling pro leon baxter was still doing a lot of wrestling for us uh, he was up against a guy that had been there only a couple of weeks bob griffin uh, we had a brand new guy that had just showed up in the territory uh uh, from Montreal, a friend of Louis. He had that kind of Montreal connection that uh, with Louis Tillet. And uh, he was going to be taking on Herb Calvert. And then referee Larry Brock was back again, man. He didn't have a bear this time. But, uh, you know, he had the United States karate champion, Ron <laughs> Slinker, as his partner. And they were going to face Eddie Sullivan and Billy Spears. So uh, then uh, the next one was the new Southeastern champions, Ricky Fields. Terry Latham, and they were defending against, for the first time, there was going to be two gladiators. We'd had a, second, a first gladiator managed by Billy Spears. This time, another gladiator joins in. So Fields and Latham are defending their belts against the gladiators. And the main event was a return match. Uh, this time, it was going to be for the Southeastern belt between Austin Idol and Hull. All right, that's that's a really great six-card match. So what about the TV to set it all up to promote it? Well, it was it started with Charlie and, and the Hulk at the set. And uh, they were watching, uh, uh, you know, one of the three first matches between Hulk and Idol. The very first match that they had. And uh, this was going to be on this show. And uh, they had ended, uh, the match ended in a no contest. 
And this one was from the sold-out uh, Expo Hall, Mobile, Alabama, that had had all those five straight sellouts, four or five straight sellouts in a row, really going crazy in Mobile. And uh, Mobile was a city full of crazy wrestling fans anyway, but they were getting exactly what they wanted in this match because uh, this one was one that was no contest, and the police had to get involved, and they had to struggle, man, to keep the fans out of the way because Idol and Hulk, they fought all the way from one end of the expo hall to the other, man. Then uh, they were going to be meeting uh, this TV uh, for uh, during this TV. They're going to be talking about their first match for the southeastern title, Austin side house, southeastern title. So Idol was in the first match. Uh, Charlie Platt invited Hulk to join him, but uh, Hulk told Charlie that he didn't want to. He said, "You know, I'm so close to Idol here, but this ring." He said, Charlie, this is a tiny studio. And he goes, we just fought in that video. You just watch all over a building. He goes, I don't think he, if he comes out of the ring and he comes over here toward me, he goes, somebody in this studio is might going to get hurt. I mean, they, they, you know, he's basically setting the stage that, uh, you know, there, there's going to be a big problem between me and Austin Idol. So, uh, you know, he just died. He, he did not sit with Charlie. So, uh, Idol, you know, uh, won pretty quickly, used his figure four leg lock, which he was famous for. And boy, Austin Idol was going to become, in the next year, eight years in that part of the country, a huge, huge star. Uh, he was just in his infancy there. Uh, Billy Spears and Eddie Graham were in the next, Eddie Sullivan, sorry, was in the next match. And after a week of being in the ring with the Bear, you know, uh, Sullivan and Spears, uh, while Larry Brock didn't get in even into the ring during those matches, uh, Southeast Commissioner Don Curtis uh, had had granted Billy Spears a request. Spears said, look, you know, Brock never got in the ring, and we had to wrestle a bear every night for a week. He goes, uh, you know, I think he needs to come back again. He needs to get in the ring somehow, you know. And he said, since we didn't get to lay a hand on him for more than a week, you know, he says, give him a human partner. <laughs> so their upcoming opponent for Larry Brock and, and for Ron Slinker uh, the next week was, you know, uh, was going to be uh, obviously uh, Spears and Sullivan again. And, and so, you know, so Charlie, you know, watched this tag match. And so Ron Slinker and uh, Larry Brock came out and set it to set. And they watched the match uh, between Sullivan and Spears out there. And uh, while Sudman's, you know, uh, the, it was it was really a great match. Charlie said it was a heck of a good match. You know, he said Spears didn't do anything though. Basically, he said Sullivan uh, wrestled both the guys. He said he uh, beat both of them to pieces, and he said he finally got the one guy laying on his back, and then he went over finally and tagged Spears, and obviously Spears strutted into the ring, which was Billy's persona anyway. I laid down on the guy, covered him, got his hand raised, and uh, probably took credit for the victory with him. He <laughs> well, had the time to say it. <laughs> so then Slinker and Brock, you know, they left the set after this match. And Charlie, you know, has always had a great uh, running feud with Billy Spears. So, so he didn't tell anybody what he was going to do. And so he invited Spears and Sullivan to join him at the set as soon as the match was over. You know, because uh, Slinker and uh, and Brock had already left the set, 
And he said, come on, come over here, come over here. And then he says, you know, I want to show you this special video. Y'all are going to love it, right? And so Spears sat down in the seat, and Sullivan stood in the chair, stood behind him. Mm -hmm. And uh, Charlie so asked the director, which was uh, Wayne Registry, he said, Wayne, can you run that video? And then suddenly they're sitting there watching it. And suddenly here's the bear, Ginger the bear, comes up on the on the screen, and it's a big, it's a montage of clips of, of, of the bear mauling Spears and Sullivan <laughs> in front of thousands of fans. They took it from three different buildings where where bear was just killing them all three times, and they were running and screaming. And uh, so Spears jumped up. He got mad. Charlie told me later, he said, Jim, that Billy Spears got mad, got so mad he just jumped up and, uh, and he staggered back into Sullivan and then turned his chair over and he fell down on his butt, right, <laughs> right in the cameras. And uh, he said, so it ended up a nice little segment. Charlie enjoyed it for, for sure. And I'm sure the fans did. That is just not like Charlie Platt to start something like that, Stud. I, I don't even know who he is anymore. <laughs> That had to be the the highlight of the TV show. And I know Charlie loved to humiliate Spears whenever he could. That's awesome. All right. So who was on the actual personality profile? Well, it was a well-deserved one, man. Uh, very popular. And I mean really, really popular. I was always surprised at how popular they were. Ricky Fields and Terry Latham, that team, man, uh, they were just loved by people in that part of the country. And uh, they got to watch the, their win, man, over who I thought was an almost unbeatable Samoan team managed by Billy Spears. Uh, they watched their victory from the night before. They had finally won the Southeastern Championship from the Samoans. And uh, they were going to defend the belts against the two gladiators all over the territory for the next week. And uh, so Louis said then that the next two gladiators were in the next match. You know, So these boys were on the profile. They had their belts. Uh, they were uh, going to be meeting as gladiators. And boom, we went straight to the ring, and people got to see both the gladiators. And uh, Luis said these guys look really good, man, for their first time. One of them was uh, Dick Steinborn. So uh, obviously, the, you know, he was great. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure uh, he had a guy that was just as good with him. So Luis said, uh, you know, uh, they were on the next match, and they got themselves a win. And then he said, uh, the Hulk uh, ended the show, man. He got himself a big bear hug on a guy, and uh, everybody in the studio were on their feet. He said the, the Hulk was just on fire, man. They were crazy about him. Wow. All right, so what happened the next week in the arenas? Well, the famous Inferno, uh, who was, uh, you know, uh, uh, one of the Smith boys, Curtis Smith, man. Uh, wow, well, and Rocky Smith, his brother, was uh, one of the original Infernos. Uh, Smith got him another win over Greg Peterson. Uh, the wrestling pro uh, won his match against Bob Griffin. Herb Calford won over newcomer Pierre Bonnet. And uh, referee Larry Brock managed to make it through the week without being injured with uh, Ron Slinker getting a win on Billy Spears every night. Billy won, lost all those matches. Slinker got it, took it on Beer and Spears every night. Then the new Southeastern Tag Champions, Fields and Terry Latham, won all their matches against those two gladiators. But uh, Spears Samoans were coming back the following week. They had just, uh, I think they had wanted a week off. 
So they were going to be coming back, and they were going to be coming back for the championship. Mm. And then the Hulk finally got a win over the Southeastern champion, Austin Idol. But it was by disqualification. He couldn't win the belt. He was still not the champion, Mm. but he did get his hand raised. All right. I know you guys had really done well in those three major southern cities. So how about attendance on, on the this time around? Well, it was not quite as good as the week before, but it was still better, man, in all three of those cities than it than the crowd in Knoxville. So, you know, wow, what a huge change that was. I mean, you know, now Knoxville wasn't competing with any of the three cities down south. Montgomery's crowd was down about 400 people to about 4,000. A mobile's crowd went down uh, to about 500 people, 5,600 to 5,100. Hmm. It actually broke the string of sellouts, man. About five in a row we had had. So, you know, but it was still more than 5,000 people. And then Dothan dropped uh, 400 down to 4,500, but still 4,500. And that's a pretty good crowd in the farm center. Oh, absolutely. Another great one, Stud. And that's good news, too. All right. Good news here, too. It looks like we're going to have time. Can you believe it? For a learning tree question this week. The person, this person has been waiting for some time to get his question answered. So I think we're going to be able to do that. No, I'm sorry. We're completely out of. I'm kidding. His name is (laughs) Justin. uh, (laughs) I know, right? Justin Aguero. And I, ho- I hope I said that right. I think I did. He lives in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. I didn't know you had fans from Brazil, Ron. I, I see some of the stats, and I know you got listeners everywhere. But so he, he you, you've got fans in Brazil for real? Uh, yeah. Well, I, well, yeah. I, I definitely do, man. Actually, I have. Actually, I have. A, I'm, I'm involved in a group down there. So, you know. Wow. Uh, uh, we're all over the world, my man. Okay, so Justin asked, I know you have a shoot-wrestle background in catch-as-catch-can American style. So how do you think you could do with Brazilian jiu-jitsu style here in Brazil? Yeah, well, you know, uh, uh, back, let's talk just a second about the Brazil thing, Dave, uh, before we go on. You know, I'm actually a member of a fan group down there called wrestling wrestling brazil you know and uh, and i have i mean all these fan groups are all over the country and basically all over the world as a matter of fact and uh, and i send that that my wrestling brazil uh, uh, friends down there a link to our studcast each week they get a link of every show so uh and miss uh, aguero i believe it's probably uh uh, more like it is pronounced, uh, you know, down there in Brazil, the, the Portuguese. They speak Portu- Portuguese down there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I appreciate Mr. Aguero, you know, getting getting in touch with me. And, and I do know something about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And I've, al- I've always been a fan, man, of the great Hoist Gracie, who back in the day was one of the greatest shooters of all time. Mm-hmm. Wow, he was so good, man. And, uh, that style of shoot wrestling is very similar to the old catches catch can style that I was taught growing up. Uh, that's what my dad and my granddad uh, they all were, they had that type of uh, wrestling and they worked that style, and uh, and it trains uh, uh, the jujitsu does just like the catches catch can. You you train in a lot of different uh, devastating submission holds, man. You learn how to moves that really hurt people. I mean, it's a uh, 
it's a really nasty uh, type of uh, type of wrestling. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. if you want to hurt somebody, you train in jujitsu or catch a catch can, and, <laughs> and you're gonna you're gonna learn a whole lot of things that most people don't know about wrestling. Wow! And uh, and the people that know how to use those styles, uh, they don't have long matches because uh, they don't need much time to hurt you, man. <laughs> I mean, it don't take them long to get you in a position. Wow. Uh, because people don't train for that where where uh, they you're susceptible to everything you know i mean they can just turn a turn a, a good situation where nothing's happening to them and bang you all of a sudden within 20 seconds you're screaming you know wow this is over you know so so as far as i as how i could do against that style uh, i hope uh, mr <laughs> mr Aguario, that uh, you're not talking about today, <laughs> you know. My shooting days are long gone, my man. <laughs> oh, come on, Ron. <laughs> oh boy, no, no, no. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in that anymore. You know, been a long time, man, since I did any shooting, and uh, about as close to it as I get these days, man, is uh, I occasionally show my son or my grandson a hook or two. You know? <laughs> All right, I have seen a couple of those sessions on your social media sites where where you actually get down in the floor and you're applying the fuller leg lock or the like on your son and your grandson. And that's, that's always fascinating. And, and, and both your son and your grandson, they're as tall as you are, maybe taller. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, uh, speaking of my grandson, man, it looks like I'm going to have to back away from uh, messing with him anymore. <laughs> you know, really soon, man. I mean, yeah. uh, He's, he's only 15 years old. He's uh, six feet, nine inches tall and looks me straight in the eyes. He's over 230 pounds. 15 years old. 15 years old, man. <laughs> Holy so, cow. You know, and if he knew a lot of that old stuff, he would be really dangerous by the time he gets fully grown. I bet. Wow. <laughs> I don't know if I want to teach him that he'll end up uh, in jail somewhere for hurting people. <laughs> no, wow. I mean, and not intentionally. So, uh, you know, well, I want to thank you uh, very much, man. Uh, to get something from down there in Brazil is really great. Uh, and uh, really, really, uh, Mr. Aguero, uh, uh, thanks for your question. And, and basically for following American wrestling, that's basically what they do down there. You have, uh, you have these groups all over the world that, uh, that know what's going on everywhere, and especially in America. That is so cool. This studcast has had a little bit of everything in it, no doubt. All right. And even ending with a question from Brazil, so you don't get any cooler than that. All right. So I know that the next one is going to be very special. Huge events in both territories set up for a firecracker of a studcast during the 4th of July week in 1979. It is going to be a big one next week. I can tell it already. So where are we riding? Well, as you just said, man, we're going to be heading into the 4th of July week, 1979, uh, in the southeastern Knoxville territory. Uh, we'll be getting ready for a visit, man, from the same bear that recently thrilled the Gulf Coast fans down there. It's that same 650-pound bear uh, is going to come to Knoxville, and the bear is going to have his work cut out for him. Because he's going to be facing a man that's almost as heavy as he is. Uh, he's going to be going up against a 450-pound Crusher Blackwell. Whoa. And I'll tell you <laughs> what, man, this series of matches for a week between Blackwell and this bear 
is some of the greatest matches I ever saw with the bear. Wow. It's just uh, truly amazing. Crusher Blackwell is going to scare the hell out of this bear. In the, <laughs> in the next week. I mean, uh, uh, I can, I'm looking forward to talking about it, even so. And the fans are also be beginning to see the beginning of one of the most shocking angles ever in East Tennessee. We got into it basically a little bit today, but we next week uh, uh, they're going to get. We'll continue, uh, and uh, we'll uh, we'll get next week into really uh, one of the biggest angles we ever did down there in that uh, up there in the territory. And we're going to also continue the Knoxville War story. Uh, we'll go back and talk about how the Knoxville Five is not just going to start uh, wrestling with this company north of them, but they're going to work out a business arrangement between the two companies. Uh, and that Angelo Poffo fa family uh, they are going to bring their sons, man, into the war, into the Knoxville War. So you're going to get Lanny Poffo and you're going to get uh, the Macho Man. Uh, wrestling with the other company in uh, Knoxville. Wow. And uh, we also have the Southeastern Gulf Coast Territory, and we're going to focus on the July 4th, 1979 spectacular card in Mobile, Alabama. And we like to do these big shows on these holidays, and uh, this one is going to be Mobile. It's on a Wednesday night, their normal night, and it's going to be in the big auditorium. It's got plenty of seats. And uh, Austin Idol is going to uh, get a get a break from the Hulk. He's not going to be with the Hulk uh, in uh, Mobile, uh, but he's going to be challenged uh, for his Southeastern title by one of the most famous wrestlers in the history of the South, Mr. Wrestling Two. Mm. He's coming after Austin Idol's belt. Uh, the Hulk is going to be going after the Continental Wrestling Association Championship, Thunderbolt Patterson. Uh, plus, the Samoans are going to return, man. They're going to have their eyes on their old southeastern belts again, too. Wow. All right, folks, on Facebook, you know you can go to Ron Fuller Welch, the Tennessee stud, on Facebook. Like him and follow him there. Become friends with a living legend. Same thing on Twitter. Find Ron on Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. Follow him there also. Check out the website, tnstud.com. tnstud.com for every studcast ever done. 43 Super Studcast and the Stud Store. It's there, too, for all kinds of souvenirs. So get your personally autographed copy of the Brutus novel there at tnstud.com. Of course, Ron's YouTube channel, Southeastern Rewind, it is red hot. It's closing in on 300 hours of video. The last 83 studcaster there, 52 stud stories, 46 short rides with the stud, now six ask the stud question and answer shows, and much more. Subscribe now to the best old school site on YouTube. It is called Southeastern Rewind. All right, any final comments, stud? Obviously, I'd like to thank everybody, man, for their generous support. We have the greatest fans out there, man. It's really, truly amazing. And, uh, you know, this thing from Brazil today is a is a good indication of they're from everywhere, you know. And we wouldn't be here without them, without those people that are out there supporting us. Uh, me or you would probably not be doing what we're doing here. Yeah. So please take care of yourselves out there and others, and may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production for a Tennessee stud. 
LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.